Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. Let us listen now for God's word to us. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And now chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on, on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, You speak to us 
and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. This is the word of the Lord. So over the past month or two, we've been journeying along with the Israelites. We've seen them go from slaves in Egypt, these people who had no voice, no power, no hope, nothing. They went from that to being these freed people out in the wilderness, but things still weren't quite right. They, they didn't have any food. They didn't have any water. So they grumbled and complained and cried out to God, and God provided. And now we see the culmination of the promise of God that was made to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush, when God met Moses on this very same mountain that they now find themselves back when Moses was still a stumbling, bumbling shepherd who thought himself unworthy and incapable of carrying out the mission that God had given him because he said, I I have a stutter. Now, we see exactly who it is that God is calling the people to be, why God liberated them from their bondage. This is a pivotal moment in in the narrative and in the life of the Israelite people. This is the moment where God's people truly become God's people. It's the moment when their identity is truly established and God's intentions for them become crystal clear. This is the moment of the covenant. God tells Moses to tell the people, remember how I brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom. So what we see here is God giving the people an identity, these people who have struggled to know what their place is, who have have gone through such an incredible event, who once were slaves and now are free, but don't exactly know what to make of that or what to do. They've been under bondage, and now... God shows them what it means to be the free and liberated children of God that they are. You have been set free because you are my people and so that you will be my people. Freedom comes with certain expectations. There's this interesting line where God tells the people they are to be a priestly kingdom, which sounds a little odd. But this, along with uh, uh, some stuff in 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we get that important Reformation doctrine that you may be familiar with, the priesthood of all believers. Now, in that context, in the, in the Reformation, it had partly to do with uh, the people's reaction to a misuse of church authority and church power, functioning too much as a middleman between the people and God, mediating the people's access to God. It's a way of asserting the dignity and the worth of the people while limiting church power and church authority. It's a big part of the reason our church, our denomination, is governed by the people, by elders, rather than a hierarchical structure like, say, a bishop or something like that, where decisions are handed down. But, especially for folks like Luther, 
the priesthood of all believers was also important because it helped dismiss this misguided idea that there is somehow a separation between one's spiritual life and one's secular life. The whole kind of Sunday Christians dynamic, right? You come to church on Sunday and you do your, your holy business and then you go away the rest of the week and do whatever you want. It was a reminder that whatever we do, wherever we go, that we are to live as God's people and that our lives ought to reflect that identity. This is an incredibly important moment for the life of Israel. God is telling the people, no longer is your worth or your value determined by your taskmasters or your slave drivers. You are my people. You belong to me, to no one else. You are a kingdom of priests, holy and set apart. And it's interesting, I think, to think uh, for a moment about what, what a priest actually is, right? What is God suggesting here by calling the people a kingdom of priests? We tend to think of priests and sometimes even pastors as people who have this kind of special call on their lives, called uniquely by God to somehow be different, set apart. They're people that in some way, however imperfectly, represent the presence of God for us and sometimes even the voice of God. I can tell you, as a pastor, there's this really weird dynamic oftentimes when people find out that you're a pastor and they immediately look at you differently. Not necessarily in a bad way, but it's different. Oh, you're a, you're a preacher. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> now I know what I'm working with here, right? You know? Or like, or like oftentimes they immediately try to clean up their behavior. Oh, sorry I said that earlier. I, you know, I, well, I go to church. You know. oh, hey, hey. You know. <laughs> the people see you in some way as a stand-in for God, as some kind of representative for God in God's presence. But God says here, this is who you are, all of you. Not any one of you are picked out as separate or select or special. You are all a kingdom of priests, a priestly people. God is calling these people to be God's hands and God's feet, an entire people set apart, a people that others will look at differently, that, they will, that in your actions, in the way you live your life, other people, other nations will see in you my power, my presence, and my promise. So in a very real sense, God here is kind of looking for a body, right? Looking for a people to live out God's mission and God's presence and God's identity in the world. To represent God's powerful presence in the world and how they live their lives. As Paul said, not to conform to the patterns of this world, to the patterns of empire, but to live their lives as God's people. A kingdom of priests, holy and set apart. And the people, they know, they're fully aware that they've done nothing to earn this designation. God doesn't say to them, because you were so good, because you were so holy, I decided to bring you out of Egypt, and now I will call you my people. God's actions and God's choice of Israel has nothing to do with what the people did to earn it. It is pure grace. It is pure gift. It's a gift and a responsibility to be called God's people. 
And then, after the foundation has been laid, after God has told them who they are, that you are a priestly people, God then gives them the gift of the Ten Commandments. That list of rules, right, that form the basis of their common life together. I don't know about you, but when I think of the Ten Commandments, the first image I get is of Charlton Heston's booming voice, right? Kind of chiding the people from the mountaintop, you are not worthy to receive the law. And then the second image I get is, my, my more favorite image, is that of Mel Brooks, right? Coming down the mountain, he's carrying three stone tablets, and he says, these are the 15 commandments given to me by the Lord. And then he drops one and it breaks and says, the 10 commandments <laughs> given by the Lord. And while that rendition of that scene is not accurate, uh, and even maybe somewhat sacrilegious, I think it does actually reveal a little bit about how we kind of tend to think about the commandments, that they are these commands that have come down from on high, this list of rules that are kind of arbitrary, right? That could have been 15 just as much as 10. Whatever, whatever God was kind of feeling that day, God just gave us those rules because that's what God does. God is a rule setter, and we have to toe the line, do what God says, and that's that. So we have this list of 10 things to do or not do because God said so. And that's what we're supposed to do in order to be good Christians and faithful people. But I don't think this is the image that we get from about, of the commandments from Exodus. In Exodus, these are relational. This is a relational act. They flow out of God's relationship with the people and seek to describe what right relationship with God and others looks like. They begin with the people's relationship with God, right? Have no other God before me. Do not create idols. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then move on to your relationship with other people. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, things like that. So when Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't actually saying anything new. He was simply summarizing the Ten Commandments. But again, notice that God is not saying, do these things and you will become my people. You will become my treasured possession. Instead, God is saying, you are my people. You are a kingdom of priests, my flesh and blood. You are my body. Therefore, live in this way because this is who you are. If God is looking for a body among the people, then perhaps this is how we see God's body in our midst. This is how we incarnate God's presence and live as the priestly people that we already are. By loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And loving our neighbors as ourselves. The way they're presented is not you must do this or you must not do that. But to me, it actually sounds a lot more like when I talk to my kids and say, you know, we don't hit people, right? Or we say sorry when we hurt someone's feelings. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a part of this family. We carry ourselves in a certain way. I think what God is saying to the people is this is who you are. This is what it means to be a part of this family, to be a part of this body. You are a kingdom of priests. This is what it means to be my people. 
The other thing I often think about with the Ten Commandments is you probably remember all of those controversial court cases about whether or not we could display the Ten Commandments on government property and whether it's a violation of the Establishment Clause and all those things. And the ACLU got all up in arms about it, and there were all these Christian groups that were fighting vehemently to have them displayed. And then, and more recently, those fights kind of reached a fever pitch, got crazy around Christmas last year, and had the insane climax where we actually had a Festivus pole made out of beer cans on display in the Florida Capitol next to a nativity scene, and along with these other uh, holiday, I guess, uh, displays. Festivus, of course, hopefully you know, is a yeah, Seinfeld, exactly. It's this fictional holiday from Seinfeld, which is, is kind of a joke. Um, and Christmas is just around the corner, so get ready. We're, we're going to have more of these debates and more of these silly arguments and these culture wars soon. And I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of these, these wars, these battles, these fights. I mean, I know which side I'm supposed to be on, right? I'm a, I'm a pastor, after all. I know what I should be saying, but for all the bickering and all the, the, the claims about who is persecuting whom, that I wonder what we actually think is accomplished by putting up this kind of detached list uh, of commandments, what, what that will actually do. In fact, I think it demonstrates well how we actually think about the Ten Commandments and how they function for us. They're just this kind of detached list of rules that uh, you have to follow in order to be a good person. No relationship required. Do these things and you'll be good. We so quickly and easily forget that these commandments are all about who we are, not just what we do, not how we necessarily just how we act, but who we are as God's people. They are part of our identity. And they're not meant to be a weapon or a bludgeon used against non-believers to point out to them just how wicked and depraved they are. And to me, I think that a lot of this has to do with it's much easier for us to simply put up this list of rules and say follow it than it is to get to know those people, to love those people, to walk through the difficult and messy parts of life with people. So in this story and among us, God continues to look for a body. And these commandments are how we as God's, God's people incarnate God's presence in this world. They describe our identity as God's people. This is who we are, says the Lord our God who brought us out of Egypt. We are a people defined by our love of God and love of our neighbor. God is looking for a body and is calling us to live as the kingdom of priests that we are, to live as God's hands and feet in this broken and hurting world. So may we learn to embrace our identity as God's priestly people, God's body, and so that we might live into the calling that God has already given us.